Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. After a brief pause, Israel is now expanding its ground operations across the Gaza Strip. Palestinian civilians are stuck in a dire situation, and already global media and public attention on the Middle East seems to be declining. Just like Ukraine, it is becoming one more conflict that rumbles on as we go on with our lives. Is there a way forward for Palestinians? I wanted to speak this week with Rashid Khalidi. He's Palestinian-American and still has some family in Gaza and the West Bank. Khalidi is the Edward Said Professor of Arab Affairs at Columbia University, and he's written several seminal books on the Palestinian question. He's the author most recently of The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, a history of settler colonialism and resistance. He was also an advisor to Palestinian negotiators in the 1990s. As you all know, we've already had a former Israeli prime minister on this show, Ehud Barak. And we've also heard from Aaron David Miller, a storied American advisor and negotiator. Khalidi brings a different perspective, and I think it's a valuable one to contend with. Khalidi, as you'll hear, gives the Biden administration a failing grade for how it's handled events in the Middle East since October 7. We're going to discuss and debate that and a lot more. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We take some questions from subscribers to our magazine. You can do that too if you sign up on foreignpolicy.com. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. And if you like this podcast, as I'm sure you do, rate us. It helps. All right, let's dive in. Rashid Khalidi, it's great to have you on FP Live. Thanks for having me. Rashid, the, so the last few weeks have been awful and you have family in both Gaza and the West Bank. And I just want to start by saying I'm sorry for everything that's going on. I hope you and yours are holding up okay. I mean, my niece's in-laws in Gaza are living through hell um, and the situation has gotten catastrophically worse, even during the ceasefire or the the truce. So one only hopes that they that they'll be okay. One only hopes. I can't imagine. So I'd like to take us back to October 7 as we begin this discussion. And I know it didn't happen in a vacuum, but it's why we're here today. And the attacks of that day were just horrific. I'm curious what your initial reaction was when you learned about what happened that day and whether you were surprised by Hamas's ability to conduct this attack and catch Israel so off guard. I was surprised. Uh, I think everybody was surprised. I would guess that even Hamas leaders who planned this might have been surprised by the extent of their success, by the collapse of Israeli defenses. Um, but we will find out more about that as time goes on. I was, I was certainly quite surprised. And something that s- 
strikes me thinking back about it is that the first day or two, we did not know the extent either of the penetration by Hamas into southern Israel or of the carnage of the, of the killing that took place in some of the uh, border settlements. Uh, that only came out after the Israeli military had retaken them, sometimes two days or three days later. But I was quite surprised. I had been in Palestine in, I guess, March, and I could tell, everybody who was with us could tell uh, that the things were on the, at a boiling point and that there was likely to be expl an explosion. The situation was completely untenable. The pressure on the Palestinians, I wasn't able to go to Gaza, but I was in the West Bank. I was in different parts of Israel. The pressure on the Palestinians was so intense that it was clear that something had to give. I, I certainly didn't expect this, however. Mm. And then we had the Israeli response, which has now killed many, many thousands in Gaza. It's destroyed much of the Strip, and it's seen by many as a disproportionate response. But Hamas must have known that Israel's response would be harsh and that the Palestinian people, the people it's meant to represent and care for, would suffer tremendously as a result of its attack on October 7. So do you think Hamas's acts have harmed the Palestinian cause? Does it set back the work of all of the people who demand the Palestinian state but oppose Hamas? Well, there's no question that what Israel has done was entirely disproportionate. One can say that not only on the basis of 15,000 people killed and uh, targets that had nothing to do with Hamas destroyed, one can say that on the basis of statements by the Israelis themselves, by the Israeli generals, by the Israeli ministers who are waging this war. They have explicitly said that they would act in a disproportionate fashion. There's a terrifying article on Plus 972, an Israeli website, which talks about the targeting, uh, which is intentionally disproportionate. So that's the case. As to what Hamas expected, I have no idea. I mean, I have no insight into the minds of the people who planned this. Obviously, none of us do. If, in fact, as... Some people have said, some Israeli and some other analysts have suggested, this was a success far beyond the expectations of the people who planned it. If, in other words, the Israeli defenses collapsed more rapidly and more completely than they were expecting, then uh, it's impossible to say what they expected in terms of response. But I personally think any leader who launched an attack of this sort must have known that Israel's response would be ferocious and would be directed primarily at civilians and infrastructure. That had to have been known. I, I'm positive that they knew that. I, I can't imagine that they didn't expect uh, an absolutely disproportionate response because the Israelis have said that. That's their doctrine. It has been their doctrine since 2006, explicit public doctrine. It's called the Dahiya Doctrine. It is explicitly disproportionate. It is explicitly a violation of international humanitarian law. They've said that. So, so they had to have expected this, maybe not at the scale, uh, because their attack uh, perhaps reached beyond what they expected, but they had to have expected this, I think. So if we assume then, as you're saying, and, and again, uh, it's very hard to get inside the, the heads of people who would plan something like October 7, but assuming that they had a sense that this would be the response, it's the stated uh, uh, Dahya, as you say, uh, um, that it, the response would be disproportionate, Given that that's the case, does all of this set back the work of all the people who demand a Palestinian state but but oppose Hamas? You know, I, I have to say, I have very little time 
for people who demand a Palestinian state over the past 20 odd years, who don't say we have to end occupation, we have to remove settlements, we have to guarantee sovereignty, we have to guarantee control over borders. People who have not said the word occupation in the US administrations of the last several, the last couple of decades, people who have not talked about rolling back settlement, not just stopping it, have no authority to talk about a two-state solution. You can't have a two-state solution where you don't end occupation and where you don't uh, uh, stop Israel from taking over more than the 60% of the West Bank it already controls. I mean, it's unrealistic to say, oh, those poor people talking about a two-state solution, this has harmed them. They were nowhere. There have been no negotiations for the better part of two decades. So a two-state solution is basically a chimera, a little uh, something dangled in front of the minds of gullible uh, listeners uh, to conceal the fact that the United States and the international community are perfectly indifferent to the fact that Israel has made a two-state solution impossible for 56 years. I would love to see uh, people grapple with the obstacles that they have helped create to a two-state solution. So to say, oh, Hamas, they destroyed a two-state solution. There was no two-state solution. There hasn't been a possibility of a real two-state solution invo involving Palestinian sovereignty, statehood, viability, sustainability for at least two decades. So uh, Hamas did not destroy anything that existed. It may have destroyed other things. I mean, it, it, I think it, in, in some ways it's harmed um, the image of the Palestinians internationally. Though there is an international flood of support for Palestinian rights generally, which in many cases acknowledges that what Hamas did was awful in terms of attacks or what was done to civilians by Hamas and others was awful in terms of, of atrocities against civilians, but who still feel not only that Israel's response is disproportionate, but that what has happened is a result of 56 years of occupation, of 75 years of mm. dispossession, and did not start on October 7th. I think that's the way most of the world looks at this. I think that's mm. the way most American citizens actually are beginning to look at this. Leave aside our, our, our sclerotic, uh, aged uh, uh, political leadership mm. in this country. How do you think Palestinians are thinking about Hamas in this moment, because, you know, they've clearly, as you say, changed the equilibrium of the conflict as it stands. But at the same time, I imagine Palestinians must be blaming them for bringing this current round of violence on its own people. I'm sure there are many Palestinians, especially in Gaza, who feel that way. But I seriously doubt that any of them uh, are going to say anything about it, and not only because they're afraid because they're so livid and furious at the atrocities and the barbarities that Israel has been committing daily in bombing civilians. These are attacks, I mean, you only have to read articles from the Israeli press to realize that they know what they're doing. They know they're killing 100 civilians or 50 civilians for every alleged target that they're supposedly attacking. And then many in many cases, the, ta the targets they're attacking have nothing to do with Hamas in real terms, certainly nothing to do with it. Hamas's attacks on Israel. But, you know, Israel would immediately then say that, that Hamas is using civilians as so-called human shields, operating from areas where it's more likely that civil, civilian casualties could be much higher. And I'm curious how, you know, the Palestinians react to that sense of being essentially, as you point out, you know, I mean, there hasn't been movement in this conflict for so long. Um, and then they get sucked into violence uh, that is essentially, you know, this cycle. Well, as I've said, I think that many people in Gaza probably resent what you just pointed out, that in fact, uh, Palestinian civilians are being punished 
uh, for the, the actions of Hamas. But on the other hand, most Palestinians seeing the destruction by the United States and Israel of any prospect for a peaceful two-state solution. The United States has demolished that possibility by its actions over decades. It's not a coincidence that it hasn't happened. It's not only the Israeli government. Everybody sees that. Given that, the, the alternative, which is Hamas and resistance and so on and so forth, have grown in stature, not because people support them. You look at the public opinion polls before October mm. 7th, they do not have majority support among Palestinians. But there is no alternative. And there's not an alternative only because the Palestinian Authority is corrupt or only because Palestinian, uh, the Palestinian political arena is divided. There's no alternative because the United States and Israel have basically stonewalled any possibility of negotiations towards a viable, sovereign Palestinian state for decades. So, you know, they see, well, nobody had an alternative. And I, I'm sure many people really regret that Hamas launched this. I mean, people who've lost their livelihoods, people who've lost their homes in Gaza uh, must be angry about this. But I will tell you that across Palestinian society, at the same time, they don't see that they're being allowed an alternative. And they are not being allowed an alternative. What is being offered to the Palestinians? What has been offered to the Palestinians? The so-called generous offers, which were made in the 1990s by Rabin or, or in 2000 by Barak or later on by Olmert, have to be examined. I mean, instead of taking that nonsense propaganda line, read what was offered. Israeli control of borders. Israeli control of security, essentially a non-viable Palestinian state because settlements were not going to be removed in most cases. So what, what are we talking about? We're talking about non-offers, in fact, not generous offers, and then two decades of nothing at all. Uh, so I've argued in many, in many things I've published that against this specific kind of occupation, against this specific kind of settler colonial dispossession, armed resistance is not the way to go. Nevertheless, when people say there's absolutely no alternative because you have stonewalled, at least for two decades, any possibility of anything else, and you, the Israeli government, has assiduously helped to divide the Palestinians and keep them separate. I mean, the, the, mm. the, the debate in Israel is about how much Netanyahu supported the Hamas government in, in, in the Gaza Strip in order to keep Palestinians divided and in order to say, oh, they're all terrorists, we can't negotiate with them. So given that background, th there is support for Hamas now, probably greater than there was on October 6th uh, mm. among Palestinians who see no alternative. I, I, don't think that's a, I don't think that's a strategy myself. But uh, so I want to come to... Yeah, I, I want to come to some of what you're describing about the history of the peace process. We'll mm -hmm. come to that and also the future. But before I do, I, I want to flip some of what I've been asking you so far, which is mostly about... Hamas and the Palestinian response. But I want to ask you about Israel now, because I think it's fair then to say that Israel's response to October 7 has been disproportionate. But it's also fair to say that Israel needed to do something. And yeah. so let me ask you this. What should Israel have done? Bearing in mind that these attacks shattered the very sense of security that Israelis had in a homeland. So what do you think an ideal response would have been? You can't answer that question by starting on December 7th. You can't, uh, sorry, October 7th. October 7th. You can't ask that question be, and you can't answer it because of course, when hundreds of civilians are killed, of course, when uh, the Gaza division collapses and uh, a half dozen army bases are overrun, Israel is gonna respond exactly as it did because they have a doctrine. 
because they have a philosophy. That is, that is a philosophy and a doctrine which is the problem. You have settlements on the borders of Gaza built on the ruins of Palestinian villages whose occupants were driven into Gaza in 1948 and never allowed to return. If you don't start from those kinds of things, of course you end up with saying everything Israel did from October 7th is justified because of the killing of all of these civilians and because of the attacks in, uh, by Hamas and because of rockets and so on and so forth. That, that starting the time, uh, starting the, the stopwatch, I agree with you. Yeah, that, but, 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 but it's worth that... it's worth pointing out that Hamas also has a doctrine. So I, I, I agree with you. History didn't start on October seven, but right. No, Hamas has a doctrine which has been which has been reinforced by everything that's happened since the nineteen nineties. In the nineteen nineties, in the nineteen eighties, the PLO, representing the overwhelming majority of Palestinian opinion, changed its charter accepted Security Council Resolution 242, accepted, recognized the existence of the State of Israel, and, and renounced violence. The response to that was not a Palestinian state. The response to that, if you look at the 1990s, the Oslo process, was a tightening of occupation, a, a quintupling of Israeli settler population in the occupied territories. I could go on and on. Those, things were, those things were fuel to Hamas. But Where she just, it just support? Bringing you back just to October 7 and what mm -hmm. the Israeli response could have been, um, I want to do something different here. I want to bring up an example of something else that's come up a fair bit in recent mm -hmm. weeks. And that's the example of India after the Mumbai attacks in November 2008. I was there for that. And, you know, there was immense pressure on New Delhi at the time uh, to do something to attack Pakistan, which mm -hmm. was identified, by the way, as a source and training ground for the attackers. Mm -hmm. And India actually ended up winning a fair bit of credit for not doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, India's example has been cited again and again as an alternative for Israel instead of following America's example after 9-11. And it's a powerful example of restraint. Mm -hmm. um, so... You know, while history doesn't begin on the day of an attack, there are examples of of restraint and things that a country can do in response to a violent attack. But given that this has been cited so many times, I, I also want to cite to you then the Indian example of freedom fighting. And, and the most powerful force that led to India's independence was Mahatma Gandhi, who right. achieved his ends with nonviolent means and largely got an entire country behind him. And so I guess where I'm heading with this question then is, is Palestine missing a Gandhi? Uh, you know, the hypothetical then is, as we talk about this conflict and the future uh, of Palestine, could a great leader make a difference for the Palestinians or mm. for the Israelis? Could have. I mean, I've written at length about failures of Palestinian leadership, and we could go into that if you want. Uh, I don't think that's the route I would take right now, because I have argued again and again that uh, uh, against this specific form of settler colonialism, this kind of occupation, and this people that you're dealing with, the Israeli people, um, the use of violence creates traumatic responses, which are violent and which are extreme. And this is a problem. I'm not the first person to have said this. It was actually Iqbal Ahmed, who in the 1980s and late 1970s was arguing this very forcefully to the PLO leadership. So I would argue that there should be alternative approaches than violence. One of the problems with that, however, is you're dealing with Israel, which shoots at unarmed demonstrators. It, it shot down and killed 200 
unarmed demonstrators in the so-called March of Return in the Gaza Strip a couple of years ago, wounded hundreds of others, maimed hundreds of others, sniper fire against unarmed it, demonstrators. If I may, just very quickly, given that I brought up India's example, uh, the British did that uh, in know that. India as well, I know as that. you well know. I know that. And it worked in India, eventually, after decades. It did work. There were others in India who were calling for armed struggle, including leaders who ended up fighting with the Japanese in World War II against the British Army. The posture of the boats. Precisely. At the same time, when Palestinians have attempted to go to the International Court of Justice or the International Criminal Court, when Palestinians have advocated uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, uh, they are told these, are, these things are ruled out of bounds. So I would argue that there are multiple nonviolent approaches that could and should, and in the past have been followed. I mean, BDS is the major initiative of Palestinian civil society, poo-pooed and spat upon in this country, banned and, and treated as anti-Semitic. Well, that's one of the problems with a nonviolent approach. It was, in fact, the approach of Palestinian civil society. The approach of the Palestinian Authority, miserable though its performance has been, was to go to international legal forums. Where has that gotten the Palestinians? I'm not saying that's not the way to go. I'm just saying when you throw up obstacles, when the United States government throws up obstacles or state governments throw up obstacles to nonviolent approaches, you can see the difficulty that the Palestinians face. You also have the, 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 the degree of repression. Now, I, I'm a student of British colonial history. The things that the British were doing in India or in Ireland or in other places are no different to what they did in Palestine or what they taught the Israelis to do in Palestine. But the degree of the repression in Palestine is so extraordinary that you would require more than a Gandhi, frankly. You would require somebody who could unite a disunited people, um, which the Indians, you could argue, perhaps were, and Gandhi succeeded. So I frankly think this is a dead alley to, to go down. I would love mm -hmm. to see a single Palestinian leader who could, uh, who could articulate a clear strategy. I've been arguing for that for years and years and years, and we don't have that right now. It's a, it's a Palestinian tragedy. It's, our, it's the problem that Palestinians have, I, I recognize. Mm. You know, I'll just point out, um, uh, and we can debate this a little bit more, but there are many pro-Israel voices, for example, who say that Palestinians never fail to miss an opportunity from, you know, right from the 1947 partition plan to Arafat in the Clinton years to Abbas and Olmert. Right. Um, but I, I get that you think they're wrong. Why? The partition plan would have given a country that the Palestinians considered their own. All of it. They were the overwhelming majority. They owned 96% of the land would have given most of it to a Jewish minority. Palestinians could not accept that. They saw this as their homeland. They believed that by the covenant of the League of Nations and by the UN Charter, they were entitled to self-determination as a people. The partition plan would have given most of their country, most of the arable land, to a one-third minority. I'm not sure any people would accept a, 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 an offer of that sort. They rejected it. Would they have been better off if they'd accepted it? I don't think that the war would have been prevented. I think that there would have been uh, much the same result that you had now. But anyway, that's a might have been in history. As far as the so-called generous offers, I've already spoken to that. I was involved in negotiations in Madrid and Washington. We were not made a generous offer. We were told that in five years, nothing that you've said would be accepted necessarily, but we would discuss it. And that discussion never really took place until Camp David. And at Camp David in 2000, I was not there, but I, I can tell you that what Barak was offering was not a sovereign, viable, contiguous 
Palestinian state with control over its own borders. Nor was Rabin. Rabin said it explicitly in his last message speech in 1975 before he was assassinated. He said it will be less than a state and we will control the borders. Well, that's not a state. That's a Bantustan. That's an autonomous area under Israeli sovereignty. And that's essentially all that any of these three prime ministers who went much farther than any other Israeli leader. I'm talking about Olmert, uh, Barak, and Rabin. That's the farthest that they were willing to go. Now, should the Palestinians have accepted those things uh, and accept permanent subordination to Israel in their own homeland? You can ask that question to anybody and you'll see what they say. Well, can you answer that? Because uh, well, they were not. First of all, they were not generous offers. Israel was offering something that didn't belong to it, so it's not an offer. It was, in effect, a a a, a request for the Palestinians to to accept permanent subjugation to Israel. That's what. I, when, I, I, when somebody I, I, controls your borders, they control you. They control yeah. your population register. They control entry and exit. They control import and export. I mean, that's that's the status quo extended into the indefinite future. But given where the status quo is right now, and I'm not defending, uh, you know, either side or any of these agreements, uh, far be it for me to do any of that, but just in terms of outcomes, um, yeah. where the Palestinian people are today, do you think there's a sense of regret um, at not maybe taking some of those offers on the table in the 90s, a sense of regret at the leaders um, that they've had over these last three, four decades, where I think most can agree um, have been feckless, fair bit of corruption as well, um, leading to the stasis and, and the status quo right now. I mean, criticism of leadership is widespread in Palestinian society. You have no, nobody quibbles with that. Going back to the leaderships of the 20s and 30s, and including the PLO leadership and the current leadership and the leadership of Hamas, I mean, look at their popularity before October 7th. None of them were popular. The people had basically rejected both. You know, none of the above got more votes than either, would have gotten more, would have gotten more votes than either Hamas or Fateh in a free election before uh, October 6th. So the critique of the leadership and of its failures is widespread, is universal, I would say. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE, one word, for a discount. I want to move in a little bit to uh, the region, to mm -hmm. America's role and to the future. But just one last thing before we move in that direction. You know, you use the phrase um, settler colonials um, and that Israel is an imperialist uh, force. I, I didn't um, use that word. Settler colonials. Yes, um, uh, yes absolutely. Um, and, and there's a school of thought um, put forward by the likes of Simon Sebag Montefiore, Montefiore who would say that, for example, um, that is a terminology that you know, is very popular in American academia, um, but doesn't quite fit in this particular case because, mm -hmm. after all, um, you know, Jews are indigenous to to that land, and mm -hmm. and uh, as a you know, they, they have a historical right to that land, and so the the terminology that that gets deployed is is not helpful. Yeah, it may not be helpful, but it's accurate. Um, the the uh, continuous Jewish presence in Palestine is uncontestable. The connection of the Jewish people and of Judaism to 
to the land of Israel, to the Holy Land, to Palestine is uncontestable. The Zionist project was a settler colonial project, self-defined. This is not some anti-Semitic slur issued by some rabid Palestinian historian sitting on Morningside Heights. This is what they called themselves. The Jewish colonization agency was a land purchase agency for the Zionist project. It was a junior ally of imperialism. It came in an era when settler colonialism was in good odor all over the world. And they were not ashamed of that. You can read Jabotinsky, you can read Herzl, you can read Weizmann, you can read all the earlier leaders of the Zionist movement. And they, they, they understood that. They claimed they had a right, obviously. And there was a connection, obviously. But that, did not, that, that is not in and of itself, a, 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 that does not in and of itself contravene the idea that the Zionist project was a European settler colonial project driven by persecution of Jews in Europe, driven by the rise of nationalism. I mean, it's a national, and that's the other thing. It's entirely dissimilar to any other settler project. Why? Firstly, because of the connection to the land, the historical connection of Judaism and the Jewish people to Palestine. Secondly, because it was a national movement. No other settler colonial project was a separate independent national movement like Zionism was. So it's fundamentally different from say, France sending French people to extend French sovereignty over Algeria and to dispossess and expel, expel the population. But what Zionism was trying to do in Palestine was to do what French settlers were doing in Algeria, to dispossess a large part of the population, take over, steal their land, uh, which is how it, the process actually unfolded, especially after 1948. So that it proceeded as a settler colonial project in its own eyes in the early decades is uncontestable. And that the way it, it operated was identical to the way in which Native Americans were pushed off their lands and driven into smaller and smaller areas, Bantu stands in South Africa, reservations, area A and area B and area C in the West Bank. And finally, if you look at the process since 1967 of colonization, it cannot be described in any, any other way. Do they claim a, a historic connection to the land? They do. But what, what, how do they proceed? By usurping other people's property and by installing themselves and trying to reduce as much as possible or constrain as much as possible the Palestinian uh, population. You just look at it, it's settler colonialism. Uh, you drive around the West Bank, it's, it, you can't see anything else. So I, I think that Simon Sebag Montefiore and other people who, whose delicate feelings are harmed by being told that this is what it is, have to get over it. Analyze what early Zionist leaders said themselves. Analyze what's happening in the West Bank today. Analyze what happened to the areas that became part of Israel after 1948, how people were deprived of their land, squeezed into smaller and smaller areas in the Galilee, in the mm. Negev. That's settler colonialism. I mean, it's mm. different for the reasons I've said and other reasons, but it shares characteristics with settler colonialism. I mean, they did, the British did the same thing. The English did the same thing in Ireland. Mm. And nobody, nobody quibbles with that uh, today, at least. Hmm. Fascinating. Well, it's a good debate to have, and we will bring Simon on to have his side as well. So, um, Rashid, as promised, I, I want to come now to the present day, and I want to zoom out a little bit. And mm -hmm. I'll start by zooming out just to the, the wider kind of Middle East. Why do you think so many Arab states seem to be abandoning the Palestinian cause Mm -hmm. um, as the Saudis did in their talks with Israel, as Egypt seems to be doing by refusing to let people um, cross the border. What's your sense of the, the broader things at play here? I would distinguish between what Saudi Arabia was trying to do in terms of normalization with Israel and what Egypt has done in refusing to allow Israel to expel Palestinians into Sinai. In the first instance, uh, it, it fits the pattern that you're talking about. 
which is a pattern of Arab governments posing up to Israel, and which has been happening for decades, really, since Sadat went to Jerusalem in 1977. And that's a process which really implicates the Arab governments, but not Arab peoples. There have been solid public opinion polls by multiple uh, respectable uh, poll, polling institutions, which have shown that Arab public opinion is extremely supportive of the Palestinians and opposes normalization if the Palestinians don't obtain their national rights. So this doesn't, this is, this is, these are the actions of governments, which I think we should examine. They're the most undemocratic governments on the planet by and large. Uh, we're talking about absolute autocracies in the Gulf. We're talking about military dictatorships in places like Algeria and Egypt and, and Syria, most of which are much more concerned with benefiting themselves as individuals or benefiting their, keeping their regimes in power or keeping on the good side of the only great superpower, uh, which is the United States. And that has, that has driven that as well as other aspects of self-interest of these regimes, concerns about Iran, for example. Uh, concerns about subversion by their populations, uh, of their populations, uh, by Iran and by others. This has driven them into the arms of the United States and driven them into the arms of Israel. Does this represent the Arabs? No. The Arab peoples? No. We know what they feel. Read the polls and look at the demonstrations, the biggest demonstrations in a decade in the Arab world. That's not the governments. Those are the peoples. So you have this dichotomy between governments that have been moving, as you say, towards uh, Israel. Uh, uh, whether they've actually established relations with Israel, like Morocco and, and the Emirates and Bahrain, or whether they have clandestine relations with Israel, mm. like many, many others. Um, that, that is a process that has been ongoing. I think it's been interrupted by what's happened since October 7th, actually. And mm. the popular swell um, in support of the Palestinians is going to make governments like the Saudi government and others uh, rethink what they were planning to do, I think. Mm. For I mean, in Saudi, in Saudi, for example, I think it's upwards of 70% support. Um, so the government certainly is uh, at odds with its people, as, as you point out. But Mohammed bin Salman doesn't need to listen to his people. What about Qatar's role? Um, because this mm -hmm. one strikes me as very interesting. Doha has been at the forefront of mediating hostage releases. Uh, and I should point out several of our subscribers uh, have been sending in questions. One of them, Marianne Matias, wants to ask you, what kind of a player you think they might be in potentially uh, kind ending of, this? What kind of a player do you think uh, Doha might be in potentially ending uh, this conflict? Do you see it as having an enduring role? It's very hard to predict because a lot will depend on what the Israeli government, whose actions seem to be rubber stamped by the Biden administration. It depends on what the Israeli government intends to do with the rest of this war. Um, the Qataris obviously played an essential role together with the Egyptians in the exchange of hostages for prisoners. Um, many of these prisoners are actually also hostages, by the way. No charges, just thrown in jail and kept there without you know, trial or charge. They played a crucial role in that, and they might be able to play a role in the future, but a lot depends on what Israel decides. And the United States tends to go along with Israel. I mean, I read Secretary Blinken's remarks in Jerusalem after he met with Netanyahu yesterday. They sounded like Israeli talking points. Israel can do whatever it wants. Israel has to eliminate Hamas. There cannot be a threat to Israel. And that's exactly what Netanyahu said half an hour earlier. So a lot depends on what the Israeli government decides as far as the next phase of this war is concerned, both in terms of how long it wants to fight and how much killing of civilians takes place. Uh, the United States is obviously trying to mitigate that because it's a humongous embarrassment to America 
Mm. So let's let's go there a little bit then, Rashid. Um, you know, I would say that Secretary of State Blinken's words this week were actually a bit stronger uh, than you're describing. Uh, he wouldn't quite say that Israel can do whatever it wants. I, once I think he was reaffirming uh, Israel's right to defend itself. But you know, the White House's stance has been shifting over the last seven or eight weeks towards. Uh, pointing out that civilian casualties are, are something Israel needs to work much, much harder right. um, to avoid. But all of that said, um, were you to step back and just assess the White House's involvement since October 7, at least, how would you grade the Biden administration? I would give them an F minus. Um, the Biden administration has, as you've said, due to its embarrassment, domestically and internationally, at the death toll, of over 15,000 people killed, most of them civilians, about 11,000 of them women and children. It's been forced to restrain Israel or try to restrain Israel insofar as targeting of civilians. Uh, and Biden, as, as you correctly said, reiterated that yesterday and today in, in, in Israel. Um, but the Biden administration's support for what Israel has done has been so full-throated that we have had seven weeks of of butchery in the Gaza Strip after the the horrible killings that took place on the 7th in Israeli uh, uh, settlements and communities. Israel has just unleashed unlimited firepower on urban areas. And that was done with not just the assent of the United States, but with weapons that are being shipped as we speak and munitions that are being shipped as we speak in order to enable that killing. So I think that there's a, there's, that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that at the outside of this war, the president sent Secretary Blinken to convey to the Egyptians and the Jordanians a request that they allow Palestinians to be expelled into their territory. That is disgraceful. That is American, direct American participation in the ethnic cleansing of part of Palestine, historic Palestine. They immediately pulled back on that when the Egyptians and the Jordanians slapped them in the face and said, under no circumstances and explained why they would under no circumstances allow that to happen. But I think that's one of the most disgraceful chapters in American diplomacy, that the United States for the first time in its history should be willing to participate in forcing Palestinians out of Palestine. Everybody knows that when Israel kicks Palestinians out of Palestine, they're never allowed to return, nor the ones who were expelled the quarter of a million in 67, nor the three quarters of a million in 1948. And so I give them an F, uh, they have not succeeded, in my view, yet. They may, in the next round, in mitigating the enormous damage to civilian life and property. But up to this point, I, I think they're guilty of war crimes, frankly. The, the Biden administration, every single one of them, at the top. So let me ask you this. I had asked you earlier that Israel needed to do something after October 7, and what that was is something we can debate extensively. America needed to do something. Um, and what is that something? Because right now, President Biden, it's often said, is the most popular man in Israel. Yeah. And do you think, assuming then that he has real leverage in Israel, is he going to use it? Can he use it? What should he be doing? He has enormous leverage in Israel. He could be taking positions that no American government has taken for a long time, which is say occupation has to end. I mean, just use the word occupation. Just use it. Just say this is an illegal occupation. The United States government hasn't said that for a decade and a half. And that's part of the problem. I mean, that's that's if you want to deal with underlying problems and resolve them, you talk about things like that. You don't just say we're going to slap 
these are bans on some of the most extremist settlers who are attacking Palestinians. You, you cut off the funding to the settlements, which is coming from American 501c3s. I mean, there are many things that the president could do if he really were intent on reversing what has up till now been an irreversible process of reinforcement of occupation and expansion of settlements. And that's the first step towards getting us to a different place. Those kinds of things obviously would be very difficult politically for the president. But he's in a different kind of political pro uh, uh, mess right now because the base of the Democratic Party, the people who would depend upon to reelect him in 2024, includes a lot of people who are furious at the administration for its position, young people, minorities, Arabs, Muslims. They are shifting towards uh, 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 not voting for this man. Maybe this won't last. Maybe this is ephemeral. Maybe he'll change his position. But if the war goes on and if the Biden administration continues to support a position where Israel won't accept a ceasefire until it's ready, which is maybe, you know, in February, March, that's what the generals are saying. Um, I think that he is in two kinds of political trouble. On the one hand, if he tries to force Israel to do certain things from the Republicans, from the leadership of the Democratic Party, from people who are supportive of Israel on the one hand. And uh, if, he, if he continues on this course, even while trying to mitigate the number of Palestinians slaughtered in this war, um, he's going to lose a lot of votes, at the very least, in 2024. You can imagine why for more than a decade now, the White House has been trying to pivot away from the Middle East. Um, Rashid, <laughs> I want yes. to try and move to the future. And so let me ask you this. Can anything good come out of this? In other words, do you have any hope that the wider world's realization that the status quo before October 7 was untenable and won't keep Israelis or Palestinians safe? Do you have any hope that that could lead to a realization of what was happening so far and how it didn't work and that that could lead to a serious diplomatic push for a two-state solution or for a Palestinian state? I'm going to give you the glass half full and the glass half empty. I mean, the glass is half full in the sense that there's been a shift globally and in the Arab world in the direction and among Americans, most Americans. I mean, three quarters of Democrats want a ceasefire. That's a shift. And there are many other aspects of it. Uh, there's been a shift globally in the United States and in the Arab world towards seeing that the situation before December 7, October 7th was unsustainable and there has to be a change. And so that might be a positive factor. And I can see a willingness to address issues that have never been addressed before, root causes. I don't mean the slapping of band-aids on a separating wound. I mean addressing root causes, occupation, settlement, and so on and so forth. The glass half empty argument would proceed from, I could add one other positive, potential positive, which is Palestinians may be shaken and Israelis may be shaken. Traumatic events sometimes change people's sense of identity, change people's people's views of what's possible. You look at World War I in the Middle East. People just changed overnight. They were forced to change. And Israel changed after the 73 war. Israel changed after the first Intifada. Uh, Palestinians changed uh, after the Madrid and Oslo negotiations. So that could be a positive. Right now, the change doesn't seem to be in that direction. Israelis seem to be understandably traumatized, enraged, and the Israeli military is on hell-bent on, on making up for its humiliating defeat on the 7th of, of, of October. But good may come out of this in terms of both peoples. The glass-half-empty argument for no change has to do with the Palestinian situation, the Israeli situation, and the American situation. 
I just described why there's paralysis in American politics. On the one hand, the president and, and, and the political leadership of our country are almost blind to the Palestinians. They don't see the Palestinians, nor the Democratic leadership, nor the Republican leadership, nor most, most of the foreign policy establishment. They talk as if the Palestinians don't exist and they can be thrown whatever scraps uh, might the Israelis might deign to, to give them. I don't see that changing quickly, though it is changing at the base. There is a change ongoing in American public opinion. It may take many years before it manifests itself at the political level. It took years for the Vietnam War to become unpopular and further years for that change to reach the top. Same was true with the Iraq War. This may be true with this. As far as Palestine is concerned, the Palestinians suffer from a divided leadership, a lack of a unified strategy. I mean, where are they going? What do they want? Under the PLO, it was clear. They wanted a two-state solution. They were never offered that, but at least we knew what they wanted, okay? Rabin was, to his credit, honest. I'm gonna give them less than a state, but he was willing to give them more than any Israeli leader before him had, had been willing to, to offer. We don't have on the Palestinian side a unified leadership or a unified national movement or a clear strategy. And that's an enormous disability in terms of any progress towards any change. On the Israeli side, the movement has been to the right and further to the right, from being ashamed to talk about kicking Palestinians out to having people who want to kick Palestinians out in senior ministries in the Israeli government. Now that could change. So could the situation among the Palestinians. But right now, that's not the direction things are going in Israel, partly as a result of the shock of October 7th. I mean, I didn't, I didn't mention this, but the, the trauma, not just in Israel, also in Jewish communities across the world, is something that, ha that is beyond the scale of this event, but the scale of this event itself is quite significant. More Israeli civilians were killed in this war than in any Israeli-Arab war, going right back to 1948. Now that's gonna have a, a psychological effect. And then you add that to previous traumas and so on and so forth. And it's clear that, I'm not talking about the military and the government, I'm talking about public opinion, ordinary people, that that is going to lead to all kinds of possible changes in Israeli politics, which may turn out positively. I mean, if you see what the families of the hostages are saying, they seem to be the only people in Israel who are speaking realistically. Let's save these people and let's cut a deal. Many of them, at least, are saying that. Um, I don't know how that will develop. I'm not an expert on Israel. And I'm not, I'm not in Palestine. I can't tell you how things are going. People now are enraged at what Israel is doing. And many of them have become more supportive of Hamas since this began. I, I insist you go back and look at the polls before October 7th. Hamas was not very popular and it is probably more popular. Will that change over time as the devastation in Gaza sinks in? I, I don't know, I can't, I can't say. Well, I'm gonna to cling to some of the more hopeful things you just described. Professor Rashid Khalidi, thank you very much for being with us on FP Live. Thanks for having me. And that was Rashid Khalidi, the Edward Said Professor of Arab Affairs at Columbia University. Remember, you can also watch these conversations live if you're a subscriber. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. You can also see who we have coming up next on our website. We have an Ask Me Anything episode running soon. I can see your questions coming in. Thank you for them. FP Live, the podcast, is produced by Rosie Julin and Dan Efron. And the executive producer of FP Live in video is Tal Alroy. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time.